Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Wash Westmoreland's new biographical drama, Colette. Set in the dawn of the 20th century, the film tells the story of Sidoni Gabrielle Colette, a talented young writer who moves from her childhood home to Paris after she weds a writer known commonly as Willie. Convinced by Willie to ghostwrite for him, Colette pens a best-selling semi-autobiographical novel that becomes a cultural sensation and spawns sequels. But her fight to regain creative ownership drives her to overcome societal constraints and challenge gender roles. In addition to Colette, Mr. Westmoreland's credits include the feature films Still Alice and The Last of Robin Hood, and episodes of the series Z The Beginning of Everything. He and his late co-director Richard Glatzer earned a Humanitas Prize and won the 2006 Sundance Film Festival Dramatic Grand Jury Prize and Audience Award for their feature, Quinceañera. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theatre in New York, Mr. Westmoreland spoke with director Scott McGahee about filming Colette. During their conversation, Mr. Westmoreland discusses the 17-year journey to the silver screen, developing the film with his late husband, Richard Glatzer, and his desire to rethink the classic conceits of a period film by being inclusive during the casting process. So I'm just here to um, interview my old friend Wash. I've known Wash since um, the mid-90s. He started dating my dear friend Richard Glatzer, um, and they collaborated for years. Um, and this is a film that they wrote together, I understand, in 1999? Uh, 2001. 2001, okay. Um, a long, long time ago. Um, a good five years before your kind of collaborative breakthrough film, Quinceanera, which was 2006 at Sundance, if I'm right about that. Um, so I kind of wanted to maybe start by just talking, I mean, I'm delighted to be here just because for all of those many years I've been hearing about this kind of dream project of yours and Richard's. Um, for those of you who don't know, Richard died several years ago, um, and the, their last film they made together, Still Alice, was Richard's last film. Um, so it's it's just such a beautiful and emotional thing for me as a friend of you both to see this film so fully realized um, now. And I just wanted to hear you talk a little bit about that long journey, about how this film started um, and your collaboration with Richard that kind of led to the kind of beginnings of this. Well, thank you, Scotty. Um, as you know, uh, Richard was an avid reader and he would just, he really, really just went through books and um, he got very obsessed with reading Colette um, around 1999, 2000, both uh, in terms of her novels, her early novels and her and some biographies about her. And he was like, there's a film in here. This is incredible. She's so amazing. She's unbelievable. You're not going to believe what happens next. 
<laughs> and um, so I started reading also, and we were both like, God, this could be the most incredible film. And her whole life is really interesting and is jam-packed enough for like HB HBO series, like going on to season seven or eight before you run out of anything. I mean, she, she really lived very fully. Um, but we focused in on the first marriage to Willie as being this natural narrative arc about a very talented person whose voice was being suppressed by a, a giant male ego and waiting to see how she would find her way out to claim her own voice uh, in the public eye. So we thought that was a great idea for a film. And we researched a lot, and then we thought, well, we have to write in France. So in 2001, um, we went to Paris in August when there's a lot of empty apartments, and we stayed around and, and visited a lot of Colette's old haunts. And, uh, and then we went out into the countryside to this abandoned house where um, there was no internet, no TV, no distractions at all. And we wrote the script in 10 days. And we thought, oh, this is it. This is so great. This is going to be really easy. And that was 17 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, since then, it's been through probably about 20 rewrites. It's been through three titles. It's been through, um, you know, um, a couple of false starts. It just took so long, but we always thought... Colette was the one, you know, Colette was the one. And we had to kind of wait, I think, for two things, for us in our own careers to better springboard into it and for, um, you know, the certain things about Colette's story that when we said in 2002 to studio people like, oh, and then it's really amazing, she starts to see this woman who is completely embracing masculinity and is a forerunner of sort of today's transgender community and have this open love affair and kiss at the Moulin Rouge and cause a riot. And they just go, huh. <laughs> Um, and now, of course, that seems like bang on the contemporary conversation about LGBTQ visibility in the roots of you know, queer history uh, with these very pioneering characters who were doing things before there were definitions and labels, uh, sort of inventing their own rules. So there was that. And, and it was just like, you know, Richard um, had ALS for the last four years of his life. And he really um, didn't have any depression or self-pity. He just never wanted to think about the disease. He just always wanted to think about the movies he wanted to make. And we made two films during those last years, and the last one was Still Alice, um, which very much deals with illness and the individual, a lot from Richard's experience. And um, when we saw the um, Academy Awards, um, he was actually in the ICU at Cedar sinai Hospital in LA, and, um, you know... We celebrated, we were happy, we smuggled in champagne, but it was, it was also a, a sad time because, you know, things were getting very difficult for him. But afterwards I said, uh, what do you want to do next? And he was just typing with his toe and C-O-L-E-T-T, -T. it was always Colette for him. And he passed away two weeks later. So, so you know, um, after I came out sort of a deepest phase of grief, it was, it was clear what I had to do. And by making the film, I was able, in a way, to keep working with him because I was working with a script that we'd sort of forged together and had so many of his ideas and so much of his wit in it. And um, in, I know him so well that part of my brain is still very much wired for Richard, so I still felt like if I got stuck on set, I could kind of <laughs> think what would Richard do and get a pretty clear answer. Um, so I still felt like I was co-directing in my process with him. And it, uh, it's really nice to see his name up on the big screen again. Um, 
Thank, that's really lovely to hear. Thank you. So when you look at this film, all those years later, like with all that passed for you and all that's passed in the culture, like does this, is this recognizably the film that you set out to make? Is it still like when you look at this, is it like, yeah, that's what we imagined all those years ago or has it really evolved? Well, the turtle with the jewels on its shell was in the first draft. <laughs> the turtle has stayed throughout, um, which was actually borrowed from a J.K. Huisman novel called Against Nature and seems so perfect for Colette in society. So a lot of the sort of structure is similar, I think, but it was so much, there was so much detail in the original draft and there were a lot of diversions and it, during the time, it really was a lesson for us in what was important in a story and really getting to the core of the story of the, you know, of Colette herself struggling to find her voice. So that became our sort of principle um, of distillation. Um, and, and after a while, certain, you know, other characters fell away and certain little lacunas in the plot fell aside. And we really just got down to the, the film as it is now. So. Um, I think if we'd made a film then, it would have been just a lot more kind of um, Baroque and complicated and Byzantine. I think it needed to find its time. Uh, distilled down to Distilled down essence. to the pure mm. alcohol that is Colette. <laughs> <laughs> well, very good. Um, we were talking a little bit earlier about um, your casting for the film, especially some of the, the secondary roles that y you were kind of thinking about um, the world that Colette existed in and trying to kind of represent it with actors that made sense for today, maybe. Can you talk a little about well, that? Well, definitely. I mean, um, you know, it's a period piece, but it sort of approached it as like, well, the period piece has got all these rules that kind of make it quite a safe genre. And I thought, well, Colette was anything but safe. And so there should be a sort of some way of rethinking the conventions of period pieces, which tend to be a sort of bastion of whiteness and sort of sexual propriety. And Colette wasn't like that. She was a sexual adventurer. I mean, so many period pieces, they spend two hours waiting to get engaged at the end. And with Colette, she's in the barn with Willie in the first five minutes. <laughs> and then there's no negative consequence to her being sexual as a woman. So we're like, we wanted to sort of capture within the cast a, a feeling of, you know, tr sort of, opening up the cast into a very inclusive range of actors. So we cast um, uh, trans man Jake Gaff, Graff to play a cisgendered man, Gaston de Caive. We cast a, a trans woman, um, Rebecca Root, to play the journalist Rashield, who's a cisgendered woman. We cast a straight woman to play the bisexual um, debutante Georgie, Eleanor Tomlinson. We cast an out lesbian actress, Fiona Shaw, to play Colette's mother. We cast a, uh, a, an Asian-British actor, Ray Panthaki, to play Pierre Weber, who in history was white. And we cast uh, Johnny K. Palmer to play Paul Hayon, um, who's a black actor who, again, in history was white. And because it's not going for absolute like verite realism, it has a twist of style. Because the actors were so great, I feel it just all worked. And a lot of these things just kind of, I felt, broke new ground, so while you're watching the film, a quiet revolution's happening. Yes, you can cast trans actors in cisgendered roles. Yes, you can catch pe cast people of color in white roles. Let actors be actors, but invite everybody to the party. Yeah, terrific. I was also hoping you'd talk a little bit about the score. Um, I saw the film the first time a couple of weeks ago, and I 
bicycled home and the kind of waltz of the of the movie was still in my head and it's so infectious and so lovely and I just I know you worked with a, a composer you've known for years but never worked with before that's right I, I worked with a composer called Tom Ades who is better known for his work in opera. He did The Exterminating Angel um, last year in New York that you know, was this really mind-blowing opera. And he's also, uh, his whole career is, is, is really based on orchestral classical music. He'd never done a film before. And um, I was, you know, when I started thinking about the world of Colette and all the incredible um, creativity that was around music at the turn of a century in France. And you have Ravel, who's just breaking all the rules of composition, and you have Sartie with his very, you know, just particular style, and you have Debussy, and before that, a little Camille Sanson. And um, I sort of asked Tom about, like, what do you think about this kind of world? And he really gave me some key pieces that fitted in so well. And then I was like, you know, the dream of Egypt, it should have this sort of thing that is, is kind of reaching a bit towards like modernism in a sound. He goes, oh, well, let me throw my hat in. And he did this incredible piece for the dream of Egypt. And I was so blown away. I was like, Tom, do you want to do the whole score? He's like, yeah. <laughs> and um, he'd never done it before. He just writes with a, a, a pencil on a score sheet. And there's no like big sort of, bank of computers and MIDI systems and things like composers have. So we had to kind of build it a little bit around him, but God, it was so worth it because um, he went back to those original sources, those original composers at the time to build the score and really came out of in that time. It's a 15-year period going from late 19th century romanticism into early 20th century modernism. Like you feel the the development in the score as Colette develops. And he just did it so wonderfully that, uh, you know, I, I'm just thrilled every time I hear it. Well, it's a beautiful score. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so I was thinking, because this is a DGA screening, I was going to ask you a little bit about production. Um, I know you made a film in New York, yeah. Still Alice, with a, a fabulous New York crew. Yes. Um, and then since then, you've gone to Hungary and made this film. Yeah. In Hungary, in Paris, and in, or in Budapest, Paris, and London, yeah. or outside of London. Yeah. Um, and then since making this film, now you've made a film in Japan. And I was just wondering about, um, well, first off, I was wondering about the DGA deal, if you were able to work as a DGA director in Europe. And you said, yes, that, that was part of your deal. I hope so. I mean, I mean that, 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 that your deal was done through the DGA. It was which, done through the DGA, and they're very flexible about directors working abroad. Right, and I was curious if that was a difficult thing for you to negotiate as an American director working, like, were they reluctant to pay residuals to the DGA, or did that go very smoothly? Um, that actually worked out fine. The producers, you know, signed on for all the DGA terms. It wasn't Screen Actors Guild, though, which, you know, because most of the cast was coming out of Britain anyway, wasn't a huge problem, but it, it, the issues came up. If, if I did cast an American actor who was in SAG, it could have created a problem. So we, you know, sort of really kept focused on England and, and the UK for the cast. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, um, yeah, they, they were very good. They, they even offered a set visit. I think they were quite keen, actually. Oh, no, <laughs> well, no, I, I asked for actually from the other guy. I'm in the middle of negotiating a deal where that's actually a deal point. And I like where they're like saying, we don't want to be, a, we don't want you to 
work as DGA directors. We want you to, and oh. and I just was glad to hear that that yeah. didn't happen. To I you. never had that, and I, I wanted Good. to stay within the DGA because right. you know, or or fighting too. Yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> our guilt. And then I was just wondering, like, in working in all those places, if there was anything about set culture or your production experience that, like, were there things that you experienced abroad that you like thought, oh. God, I wish I were back in New York. Or are there the things that you experienced abroad where you were like, next time I make a film in New York, I want to do things this way. Or like the things that you learned. There are, yeah, there's definitely different work cultures with each sort of national, you know, setup. And I think some things that countries can learn from each other. Um, you know, I, I had a great time working on Still Alice. Um, we would, I guess, we're doing eleven-hour days, um, and we stuck pretty rigorously to that um, because of you know, Julianne is a working mom, so we wanted to respect that. Um, but in Europe, they have this thing where you give, you do like a continuous day, so you work for nine hours, but lunch time doesn't exist, so you never stop for lunch, so you just keep working. And, um, and even though you only have nine hours, everyone works really hard because everyone's happy to be on a nine-hour day, and you don't get that slump after lunch, and you really don't feel like you've lost time at the end of the day. So I was very much like, oh, wow, this is like the 70s. You can like work a day with your crew. You can go and watch rushes together. You can go out and have a dinner, and then you can sleep. It's like really nice, whereas I think American production has got very obsessed with like using every single daylight hour into you know the shoot. So um, there was, a, I guess, a more European schedule, and uh, and you know, people over there liked it, and it was something I think I would, if I was working in America, for certain certain aspects of the shoot, it would work really, really well to do these continuous days. Very interesting. <laughs> All right, does anyone in the audience have a question? Yes. Okay, so the question, just to repeat, was she associated about Dominic Weiss, the casting of Dominic, and she so associates him with the affair on the wire, and she was wondering about the decision to cast him in this role as Willie. Um, yeah, it was casting Willie was a little tricky. We we cast Colette first, and you know, really excited when Kira came on, and then we waited to cast Willie because it has to be matched to Colette, and we have to. It, Willie was fourteen years older than Colette, and Dominic's about fourteen years older than Kira. That that was actually a fortunate coincidence. The main reason was that you have to be invested in the marriage all the way through the story. Um, so even though he behaves despicably, you still have to understand how he got away with it and how um, she had an enduring affection for him. So we felt Dominic was someone who could, you know, just have the wit, the charm, the energy, the life and soul of the party and do things that were behaving very badly, but yet sort of have this wink, this way of getting away with it. I think that's pretty close to the spirit of the original character of Willie that, um, from the way Colette writes about him. So I think in, uh, if it had been a heavier, more sort of villainous Willie, I think it would have been just so um, like painful to, um, to see her sort of, uh, and you'd wonder why the hell she did, such an intelligent woman doesn't get out, get out, get out, get out. Instead, like wanted to see the complications that men can use to oppress women. Of course, it's cultural, it's social, it's financial, it's economic, it's legal, but it's also emotional pressure, and it's also sexual pressure, and it's also this kind of just like 
um, just personal uh, sort of charm that someone can use against someone um, as a way of keeping them down. I mean, that really worked for me. His, like, he really surprised me, I think, of everyone in the cast. Like, I wasn't expecting to be won over by him like I was. And, yeah, his charisma um, and sense of fun, kind of. Like, you did kind of understand the allure of Willie. And, and you also kind of believed that he, you know, like, that that pressure helped bring out the artist in her for all of his... You know, like for, for for all he was the kind of villain of the piece, he's also what brought her to her creativity. Yeah, that's why it's a very complex relationship because he was both a mentor and an exploiter. And Colette said at the end of her life she would have never started writing without Willie. Um, obviously, she was just an incredibly talented person and a natural writer, but it was his sort of you know, idea to push her into doing that and to create this sort of disciplined regime in which she would write. Um, so it's, um, it looks at really the, you know, control this man had over this, you know, incredibly talented woman and how that both formed her as a writer, but also created a situation that she had to escape from if she was going to mature into the true voice of Colette which we learn from the vagabond onwards in her work. I love that scene where he was looking over the manuscripts and saying to himself, I, I wrote that, I wrote that. It's <laughs> like, exactly what I believed he would have done <laughs> before he burns them. Yeah. Fortunately, they weren't burned, and they were actually used uh, when Colette sued later on in the 1940s to get credit for the books, um, which went back to her. Then Willie's son, Jacques, from an out-of-wedlock affair he had, sued to have them change back, and he won. So they went back to being Willie for a year. And then Colette came back with the manuscripts, and it went back to Colette. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, yes. So the question is, she said she loved the way he distilled it down, but she also loves the idea of binge-watching it on Netflix in a longer form, and was wondering if there was a possibility of that. I think that's someone else's job, but I, th I think it would be a really, really great thing to follow. She had uh, two other marriages, and they were both very interesting and very complicated um, because she was such a forthright and sort of interesting person and never did what you expected her to do. And then she sticks around into the 40s and discovers Audrey Hepburn to play Gigi on stage. Yeah, That's she had an eye for talent. <laughs> <laughs> she discovered Audrey Hepburn. Um, she, you know, even at the end of her life, she was still very active writing and she became this sort of, you know, very important French cultural literary figure and was defined as like, you know, this woman of nature, the eternal feminine. And then a lot of people in France aren't so aware of her early days as the, like this sort of very transgressive pioneer around sexuality and gender. So um, the film really highlights that, that youth that later in her life she sort of moved away from a little bit. Anybody else? <laughs> No, I, I'm an animal rights person, and um, the, it was I was very concerned about the turtle. The turtle had special gelatin paint that was applied that morning, and um, actually came off on the hands of the handler. But you know, it wasn't anything that was sticking to the shell that wouldn't come off with a, a, a moist towelette. Sorry, Eddie. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> the handlers survived and the jewels were stuck on also with gelatin jewels, uh, gelatin glue and kept moving around a little bit. So um, the turtle was looked after. And um, I just love that moment when Kira looks at the turtle and sees this, you know, kindred spirit. Uh, the turtle acted really well. Was it a Hungarian turtle? It was a Hungarian turtle, but seemed very French, I thought. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Guys, this is so great, and Richard would love this. Richard was a New Yorker through and through, and, uh, you know, it, it's really his work and his um, language that's coming out of the mouths of these great actors, so it's great to show it in New York. Um, where, you know, uh, I, I just feel like but this is Richard's home. So it's really nice to be here. Thank when, you. when does the film come out? I think film's coming out next week, and it's playing at the Paris. Get it? Go to Paris to see the <laughs> <laughs> Inspired piece of marketing. And it's also at the Angelica. When I lived in New York in 1992, the Angelica was like my movie temple. So I'm like so excited. The costumes are in the lobby and all that stuff that you dream about. So it's really wonderful. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, please tell your friends. And uh, oh, one, one more question. Um, well, I, this film I shot in Japan um, Earthquake Bird is now in post, and that's very different from Colette. It's a, it's like a dark crime story. It's a Tokyo noir, yeah, uh, set in 1989, and um, I'm, you know, it, it was a great um, experience making that film as well. Um, but it's kind of like having two kids, you know, one that's kind of just going to kindergarten, the other one's getting ready to leave home. So um, you know how it is when you've got, a, you have these projects that you love. So. Um, I've kind of been in post with Earthquake Bird, but just had to switch everything off for the Colette release, and we built that into the post schedule so that I could just get back into the Belle Epoque. <laughs> well, thank, thank you, you all. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll have a lot more for you in the coming weeks as award season approaches, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. 